Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Venkat Rao. Venkat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So, so Venkat, you are a, a blogger, you know, founder of Ribbon Farm since, since 2007. You did your PhD before that, uh, I believe, University of Michigan on control theory. I went to Michigan as well. And then you, you've been blogging for you know, uh, t- over 12 years you are an independent consultant. Uh, you help executives as sort of a sparring partner. Uh, you uh, spent a year at Injuries and Horowitz, and where you published Breaking Smart, which is sort of an expansion of the software's eating the world thesis. And Ribbon Farm is sort of uh, you know on the cutting edge of culture and organizations, and has explored various different threads and subcultures, and helped create some over time. And, and really early on in, in the blogosphere, there's a lot of sort of you know, Ribbon Farm spin-outs or, 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 or inspired blogs that have come out of that. What would you edit to my, or add to my introduction of, of you just there? Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. I think you pretty much covered it all. Uh, I would add that somewhere in between uh, uh, my PhD and starting a career as a blogger, I did spend about four years at Xerox in their innovation group. So that's kind of a chapter in my life that was not very public, but very interesting for me, industrial R&D. And we're, we're going to get to what you're focused on now in a bit. I'm curious to, if we just sort of track the, the crates. You, you like to say that you sort of, your coming out moment was 2009, I believe, with the Gervais uh, principle. But if you look back at sort of the, the 12 years you know, plus the, of writing, what do you think is uh, the contribution that you have made that is going to be most lasting? Um, or the ideas or what do you think, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, people might be talking about or, or, or might have spawned other people to build on top of that sort of new insight, uh, you know, way of looking at things? That's actually a very interesting question because uh, when you work with um, basically the realm of pure ideas that don't actually have a direct impact on the world, like, you know, making inventions, you'll enter the history books directly. Being a politician and, you know, getting to be president, you'll enter the history books um, directly. But when you're working with ideas, ideas are in a way sort of disposable, consumable aspect of a particular time and place in history. And usually after a period is over, not many people are very interested in what happened then, even though it might have been a big part of, uh, you know, life culture at that time. And uh, this process interests me where, uh, like uh, right now, for example, as part of some of the work I'm doing, uh, I'm learning a lot about the Bloomsbury set. So the Bloomsbury set was a set of uh, writers, poets, intellectuals in 1910s uh, London, and it included Virginia Woolf, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, T.S. Eliot was on the fringes of that. And if you look at the history of the period, it's very clear that they were kind of like prominent on the cultural scene, so to speak, right? And of course, now, almost 100 years later, we know them by their individual works. So T.S. Eliot is famous as a poet who like, you know, wrote uh, The Wasteland. You've got Virginia Woolf, who's famous for starting an entire literary genre. So they're known individually, John Maynard Keynes for uh, uh, economics. So that was, I think, very characteristic of the industrial 
age mode of you know intellectual production and working with ideas where there would be these sort of subterranean subcultural conversations that were very fertile and people would be working within them some small subset of them would kind of pop write major books and be remembered in posterity and then the rest would be forgotten even though some of them would be very important during that time and i think of them almost like you know in a chemical reaction there are these nascent species that uh, helped the reaction happen but may or may not be remembered and one of the interesting things that's happening with intellectual culture and you know just working with ideas in general in the age of the internet is the kind the subset of ideas that actually make it into the history books as you know coherent bodies of works like uh, somebody's book somebody's famous prize winning contribution to economics those things are becoming less and less uh, as a fraction of overall intellectual output and more and more is going underground so i wouldn't actually be surprised if in answer your, to your question my lasting contribution is exactly zero where everything we've done everything i've been in conversation with with you know a dozen other people i really enjoy working with um, at all levels we are all forgotten and the only remnant left is some sort of you know vague flavor to certain patterns of i don't know how management um, was shaped or how you know companies were run and maybe a couple of phrases and memes that enter the you know era without any record of where they came from like you know uh, to give you an example i think uh, one of the things i'm most recently well, well known for is the phrase premium mediocre and when i look on twitter now i see a lot of people using that phrase without actually knowing where it comes from or acknowledging it and honestly that's the best feeling in the world where you get this feeling of being this i don't know backstage i don't know idea Uh, conjurer and it's there and then you walk away and say my work here is done that's kind of what i like it's like you know leave only footprints take only photographs kind of uh, approach to intellectual culture and, and i think the broader philosophical point is i think that's how it should be ideas should be consumables ideas should be forgotten the moment they've served their purpose to help people live better lives and every age should actually revisit the big questions and sort of rethink them for their own needs and uh, it's actually a little bit of a tragedy if ideas stay on and outlive their you know utility yeah and let's um we're going to get into premium mediocre but if you were writing maybe narrow the scope a little bit if you were writing a wikipedia page of yourself today and then the contributions you had to sort of you know say 3 to 5 sort of either memes or ideas or concepts that you think oh no these are these are important concepts that I want other people to know about them or or they already do so premium mediocre might be one of them maybe something to do with legibility like what are a couple some of the other ones that you think you've either created or helped contextualize for for today so uh, on the specifics of using wikipedia as sort of malware for that i should note that i have been hovering on the edge of notability on wikipedia for several years where this each time i visit there's a 50 50 chance there will be a notification saying it's been marked for not meeting notability guidelines it's kind of <laughs> makes you think doesn't it <laughs> yeah i totally love that i love hovering on the edge of notability that's where i would like to live and die and i'd like gotten <laughs> on the edge of notability it's sort of a lovely because you, you don't want the costs of fame basically like no it's not about i don't really have very strong opinions of fame 
but it's like it's a very liminal space to occupy in culture and a liminal space is a very fertile space where you're kind of like popping in and out of existence uh, but yeah i mean you covered most of them i suspect if i'm remembered beyond 10 years it'll be probably for things like premium mediocre maybe the gervais principle will show up as a footnote in a history of you know satirical takes on business history like uh, the peter principle parkinson's law dilbert principle maybe somewhere in there the gervais principle fits legibility yes i i would take credit for popularizing james scott's ideas quite significantly in the tech subculture at least james scott's finite and infinite games that's another idea i think i helped evangelize a lot so yeah i mean it's the usual suspects exactly what you might think if you kind of uh, browse my writing a little bit there's like a half a dozen concepts and they may or may not last and and what are the we're going to get to a bunch of those but looking forward what are sort of the big ideas that you're excited about now or or spending a lot of time on or or what's the potentially the next book about or some of the questions that you're trying to answer so a couple of the big ones and um, i think we discussed these earlier in you know setting up this say podcast uh, mediocrity is a big one uh, another that really interests me is um, what i call elder blogging or um, you know act two thinking like what do you do after you've kind of had an act one and you kind of have like a body of work of whatever sort maybe you've done a first startup maybe you've done a first product maybe you're an academic who's written like 20 papers in an early emerging uh, field maybe like me you're a blogger who's been at it for 12 years and has developed a certain body of work with a few viral hits and a lot of flops along the way so that's what i think of as an act one kind of uh, situation and then you sit back and say all right what next and i think of that as the act 2 challenge and just the intellectual structure of the act 2 challenge what type of problem is it what is it most interesting to do with sort of the second half of your life so to speak so that's something that interests me a lot and of course the book i'm working on right now is kind of a sequel to my first book tempo so the theme uh, which i'm working on uh, here at the bergruen institute where i'm a fellow for a year Uh, it's uh, i call it multitemporality so it's a little bit of a sequel to tempo in that it's also a book about the nature of time so the philosophy of time so to speak and um, the basic idea is that we all inhabit our own subjective uh, timeline these days we don't share one coordinated global sense of time as in the industrial age it's like if we were all tv channels there's now you know seven and a half billion tv channels and we each live in our own uh television channel so that's what i'm working on now let's, let's dive into a few of these uh, ideas so mediocrity uh, as one big sort of overarching idea but maybe first you can define uh premium mediocre what, what you think the contribution is there how it you know, compares to other sort of methods of uh you know self development or productivity and then we can talk about where you're going with that so the two are actually not that related though they kind of um, premium mediocre inspired my current sort of uh, bunny trail on mediocrity but premium mediocre was uh, i don't know my usual stick of uh, social observation i keep doing one of these things every couple of years uh they have varying degrees of success so i would say it's um, it's social observation with a little bit of an eye to basically making fun of everybody and not letting anybody get away with uh i don't know a very exalted view of themselves so it's it's kind of fun to do these things and it is the core idea that we are we need to sort of prove to our parents that we're living better than them but we don't have more money than them so we you know it's all like yeah it's it's, it's a theater of um you know 
faking more perceived sort of success and uh, progress in life than you're actually experiencing. And it's an artifact of uh, a highly unequal economy with very sort of winner-take-all dynamics in um, success, traditional careers kind of falling apart, uh, cities becoming unlivably expensive. So, you know, all the usual things that we talk about all over the place. It's a certain social response to that. And it's uh, it has its funny elements to it. And you kind of have to sit back and uh, take a moment to laugh at these things. And honestly, when I wrote that, it was mainly, I don't know, an attempt to find a vector of trolling, so to speak, like, you know, figure out a way to make fun of a really large spectrum of things. And uh, as I usually end up doing, what starts out as a troll, I end up finding a couple of deeper ideas within it. And I go long on those things. But I didn't actually expect it to blow up as much as it did. But it seemed to strike a chord. And I think I've gotten the most press and sort of global attention for that of all the things I've ever worked on even more than the Gervais principle. It's really hilarious to see like Twitter people in Kenya writing about premium mediocre, random people in Brazil using the phrase. I thought about a premium mediocre festival or... uh... (laughs) (laughs) It's it's one of those things that you kind of have to... It's a faddish concept and you have to let it be a faddish concept. But there are elements of it that I've picked up on and I want to develop more. So I really like the character of Maya Millennial. So the archetype I constructed as a sort of means to explore um, that social condition, I really like her. And uh, I'm sort of trying to figure out ways to make her uh, an ongoing character who has more adventures in the social world. So we'll see how that goes. So I have like some ideas like that but in general i mean it's like these things come and go it'll be it'll be there in the environment for another couple of years then people will forget about it and that's how it should be i'm I'm curious broadly what you think about how you think about the role of humor you know one thing i've in a different lens you spent a lot of time just on my feed recently is sort of parody vc is sort of like Mm -hmm. like all these uh, channels (laughs) coming out making fun of venture capitalists and you know it's very funny but humor is also very subversive and really trying to say something and i guess how do you use, use humor or think about like, is there a revolution coming, <laughs> like, to overthrow venture capitalists? Like, how, how should one interpret sort of the rise of uh, of parity? I don't know that there has been much of a rise. It's sort of one of those constants in history. And what actually varies is um, the level of seriousness and earnestness um, in a culture. So the humor level kind of stays constant, but people get more or less serious depending on how they see the opportunity for more and serious ways of being in the world, right? So when there's a lot of hope and people see like big games they can kind of break into and get into and make something of themselves, then a certain sort of uh, attitude of self-serious um, and solemn approach to life kind of is on this ascendant and Silicon Valley was such a space for I would say almost 15 years between the crash of 2000 to about 2016 Silicon Valley had this very self-serious image of this is where the action is this is where the future of humanity is being invented and um, that did lead to a lot of people having a very serious attitude so I would call that a seriousness bubble and then of course uh, uh, the events in 2016 and after kind of showed us the limits of um, our ability to you know, script the future as part of the tech world. And we had to kind of take a backseat and the focus of the theater went somewhere else. And it was not as much of, it has not been a very hopeful time. And the 
energies that previously used to go into being serious and earnest and striving in sort of a Horatio Elgar way, they've now gone into like dark, gloomy imaginings and apocalyptic thinking and so forth. So that stuff kind of redistributes itself. But humor is one of those things that I think is almost like constant cosmic background radiation. And depending on your personality type, your fundamental genetics, there's going to be a certain sort of fixed proportion of how much humor you bring to being in the world. And for some people, it's like they can't stop seeing the world in a humorous way to the point that it's actually becoming a liability for them, right? They're the ones who can't, you, they can't pass up a opportunity for a punchline at a funeral, that kind of personality. Uh, like, you know, people are dying, people are getting shot, there's a war zone on, Hong Kong, riots, and they have to make a joke about everything. So that's one extreme. At the other extreme, there's people who just can't lighten up and they'll never have any ability to make jokes. I think I'm somewhere in between there. So I probably I would have like a 20% default uh, humor reaction to basically everything. Like it's not something I script or plan. It's like, it's the way I see the world. I mean, I look out the window, I look at something and one out of five times I will kind of spot uh, something funny so that's it's almost like a filter you have in your basic existence yep. it's also i wonder more on a group level it's like as soon as any group rises in power they, it's you know like even you know what being woke used to be a pretty serious thing now it's sort of a parody yep. they're like easy to make fun of like certain things as they, as they rise in powerfulness is is easy to, to make fun of them yeah there's there's different kinds of humor i think uh, i distinguish um actually let, let me try a two by two here so there's there's a humor before complexity and a humor after complexity. So the humor before complexity is you're in the world, big intimidating things are happening in the world. You're fundamentally having a scared reaction to the complexity and difficulty of existence. And it's almost a kind of humor that arises out of uh, insecurity and fear. And then it, there's a certain, you know, edge of cruelty and cynicism and uh, darkness to that, um, you know, fear, uh, spark humor and then there's the other kind of humor which you've kind of like lived a little you've slain a few demons you've gotten past certain big challenges in your life and you've kind of made it out the other side alive and with some compassion intact and the humor that arises out of that life situation I think it tends to be a little bit more um, compassionate and so that's the sort of personal journey angle and I think there's also a social angle where the more private and playful a kind of humor is so this is uh, so the, think of like childlike play or the play of kittens and uh, puppies that's like you know pre-social kind of humor that's fundamentally much more elemental humor energy and then there's this sort of socialized form of humor the kind where it becomes part of uh, play as a, a social function I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Huizinga's book uh, Homo Ludens so it's a yeah. really lovely book about humans and how the play element of culture shapes everything like everything is in a certain sense play but Huizinga's book the sense of play he's talking about is kind of like how uh, if you go into a courtroom and the judge and lawyers are arguing there's a sort of um, ceremonial play-like quality to it that's what he's talking about and humor has that side to it as well there's a kind of humor that serves a social play function a ceremonial function uh, socializing people cutting out outsiders uh, cutting people uh, down when they rise above their station maintaining the social hierarchy so that's yeah. kind of a socially functional humor and that's not something that uh, 
I enjoy very much and I sometimes do it accidentally, but that's not uh, sort of the right. core of my humor. I like humor more as like a compassionate filter on the world and just a way of seeing in an elemental sense. Totally. Let's, uh, let's get to mediocrity. What uh, role does it serve for you uh, or, and what do you want it to serve for others? How is it an alternative to sort of self-help or personal productivity culture? And, and what questions are you trying to answer around mediocrity in, in your work? So mediocrity is an interesting concept if you look at it as a way of describing the world as opposed to a normative sense of um, how to be in the world, right? So mediocrity is not an alternative to self-improvement. That's not how I approach it, though it often ends up being that. Mediocrity is a description of the world in almost a tautological sense, in that, if there's a bell curve, most of the people are going to be in the middle. I mean, most of the world, the seven and a half billion people in the world, by definition and construction of how we think about anything at all, most of these people are fundamentally mediocre. And I include myself firmly in the middle of that set. I'm a mediocre person. And it's an interesting engineering challenge to ask, how do you construct the best possible world out of the most mediocre components? Or if you like to get very meta about it, you can ask how do you construct the most mediocre possible world out of the most mediocre components? And this is actually not as subversive or weird a thought as uh, it might appear at um, first glance. Like if you look at the history of the industrial world, what you think of as excellence and quality assurance and Lean Six Sigma, all those things we associate with excellence, they're actually in a way mediocrity in disguise. It's like getting to the stage of understanding and knowledge about the way something works, where you can actually have great aggregate outcomes out of, you know, the average component. You don't need excellent people to get excellent outcomes. So the first people who ever flew planes, they had to be, you know, really good at it. They had to be talented in a sensory tactile sense because they were working with temperamental machines that were prototypes and or take space flight, right? Neil Armstrong was a top test pilot and he had like ice water in his veins as some people describe him. And that's why he was the right person to be flying the uh, lunar module on um, in the Apollo mission. But as things improve, if you're not actually moving to a condition where completely average and mediocre people can participate and create value and help build the world out, you're not actually progressing as a species. So today, basically everybody who graduates with a STEM degree can do a mediocre level of calculus. And there was a time when there were like five people in the world who knew how to do calculus. Same thing with relativity. That's at one point people said there were like five people in the world who understood relativity. Now it's everybody who takes a science degree has a basic understanding of it. And that's, it's part of the way the world works where things might start out where only exceptional people can do something. And then as they evolve and we understand these things better, middle of the distribution people can work with it. And that's when it starts to actually become useful because then you can pursue whatever it is at a low enough cost that there's surplus that you can then go beyond and do more with it. So that's the fundamental appeal of mediocrity to me. It's it's part of the human condition and it's silly to not understand it and think of it as like a character flaw almost. In some way, it's sort of like an activism against sort of the idea that you have to be a master at something or you're, you're nothing if you're not a master at something or, or that the goal is mastery. It's so being an activist would be a very exceptional thing to do. It's almost like you ever did the um, I forget what they call it um, acting like a corpse as a kid. 
where your mom is trying to drag you off and make you do something and you go all sloppy and you have to be dragged. It's that kind of almost passive resistance. And uh, it's sort of not activism. Uh, maybe we should call it passivism, but basically uh, raising an eyebrow at um, hustle porn, raising an eyebrow at everybody who says you must like, I don't know, kill yourself and be the best in the world at something. And even if you sort of pull back from it a little bit, like Scott Adams has this heuristic where he says, you don't have to be the top 1% in the world at anything, but you should be in the top 25 at two things. And that gives you strategic leverage. But you're still thinking in terms of exceptional outcomes and how to kind of beat the crowd. And if you think about it, that presupposes the existence of a crowd to beat. And what is that crowd doing? I mean, are they like chopped liver? Should they all be exterminated and killed? That's kind of a path of thinking where if you don't question yourself, that's how you end up with, I don't know, genocidal intentions of like, you know, the superior master race people with superior genetics should be saved and everybody else should be sent to concentration camps and killed. And some people actually try that. And sometimes it works to some degree. And what do you know, 30 years later, humanity has regressed to the mean right back where it started. And you kind of have to acknowledge this uh, statistical reality of what it means to be uh, part of a species with like 7 billion data points Right. But, but as we become more and more niche, like, can everyone be the best at one thing? <laughs> Are there enough things? Like, it, it I'm not be, the best rapper or best venture capitalist, but I'm the best rapping venture capital. You know, just keep stretching out. I think there's something very wrong with the, that way of even thinking about these questions. It's like, what is best? So best, usually when people use it in the sense you're using it, they're thinking almost like, you know, Aspie engineers optimizing a problem. It's like, oh, I'm defining this cost function with these constraints. There's this fitness landscape and there's this lovely peak or bottom of the valley. And I'm going to be there and I'm going to be the top of that hill and I'm going to be happy after that. And that's not how evolution works. That's a sort of deep misunderstanding of adaptation, fitness, evolution. It's a misunderstanding of all those things. Uh, It's thinking of evolution as a finite game that you play to win. Mediocrity arises out of thinking of um, life as an infinite game that you play to figure out how to continue playing, which means you're not always climbing the nearest hill. You are kind of like becoming aware of your uh, situation and just trying to give yourself the most interesting life possible and just continue the game. And when you start thinking that way, the question of, all right, should I pick one super narrow niche where I am the best in the world? It kind of becomes uh, a really ridiculous parody of itself. Like, can you imagine a world like that? Seven and a half billion people, each of them is like best at some micro super nano defined field. And I'm like the super best rapper about technology and software eating the world in the medium of PowerPoint. And (laughs) hey, five other people acknowledge that and two people actually watch anything I do. It's kind of a ridiculous end game, right? But isn't it sort of like where markets lead us to? I mean, is it increasing, you know, comparative advantage and, and specialization? I don't think so. It's, uh, there's not actually that much differentiation in a lot of what people do. Like you and I are having this podcast conversation. I've been on a few podcasts before. You've done dozens before. How different are they all really, right? I mean, should each of them be given a brand name and a, you know, skew in a mp3 media file library and have like a uniquely differentiated brand no the world doesn't work like that continuing the game surviving uh, 
does not actually imply everybody has to be special and unique and pop to do that. And that's something actually, I think a lot of um, excellence focused individual striving type people don't get that as a social species, there is a sense in which humanity kind of wins or loses the game of evolution as a group. And if you, if you think in this way where it's like, either I personally or this group I'm affiliated with or this tribe or this nation, we will be superlative, excellent exemplars of the human species and we will own the future. That's kind of not really how evolution works. Uh, If you look at how evolution works in terms of just plain reproductive success and the percentage of biomass of uh, earth that you occupy, you might argue that, you know, algae or um, insects are much more successful than humans. And it's kind of silly to think that, our future depends on identifying what's excellent about some small percentage of us in today's adaptive conditions, codifying that, making it legible, giving away prizes and Nobel prizes for that, and hoping that by rewarding those people exceptionally, that will somehow ensure our future. This is like wrong on so many levels of understanding of how science and evolution work, how the future works, that it's kind of ridiculous. And and the way I like to get at this is you think the future depends on maybe high IQ and being beautiful in a conventional sense. Maybe that's your thing. And you work hard in a eugenics program for your favorite dictator to make that the future of humanity. And what happens? An asteroid hits the Earth, we get some sort of nuclear winter, and it turns out that the best survivors are really short people who live underground and are really kind of stupid, but are good at finding potatoes underground. I don't know. That's how evolution in practice seems to work, which is the future is uncertain. You don't know what adaptive fitness looks like tomorrow. So codifying what you sort of prize in your status games today as being a good proxy for what's actually survivable for tomorrow and what's a good way to continue the game. It's kind of like you have to laugh at it. And that's a big part of my mediocrity project is basically sitting back and enjoying a good laugh at the expense of that kind of thinking. And how do you think about the tension between uh, individual identity and and group identity? Is it the more you have of one, the less you have of the other? How should we make sense of this? Because I think the mastery uh, mindset is trying to erase the individual identity. Like I am special in this way. And this is my you know, expertise. So this is probably one of the topics where I have personally grown and learned and evolved the most in terms of my views. So yeah, I, I would say about 15, 20 years ago, I would be something like a naive libertarian where I saw kind of a zero sum equation between uh, being an individual versus being subsumed into a group and a group identity. And I would say that the people instrumental in kind of changing my mind about that are Hannah Arendt, Ursula Le Guin, a bunch of writers in that vein, Donna Haraway. A lot of people thought of as vaguely feminist, second or third wave feminist, I don't know how to categorize them, environmentally conscious, communitarian thinkers. And the key idea I got from their work is to be whole is to be part. So this is a line Ursula Ligon uses a lot. To be whole is to be a part. And this gets at something Hannah Arendt also talks about, which is the fullest expression of human nature is only possible in mutuality with other people. So if you go off on your libertarian private island where you have your, you know, 
little bunker that you've built to survive the apocalypse and all the zombies coming after you. And uh, you've stocked it with like guns and gold and Bitcoin or whatever the hell you're doing. That's, that's a very impoverished way of being human. And that's what Hannah Arendt calls sovereignty as opposed to freedom. And freedom is something that only can be experienced in a plurality of, among a plurality of other people. And this is not a mass in the sense of a mass populist movement following Trump. This is a bunch of people who get to have their own opinion, who get to have uh, sort of a view of the same thing that you're talking about and get to disagree with you. So this is showing up in a conversation, saying things, accepting that other people can disagree with you, not walking away because of that and continuing that conversation. That's mutuality. And aren't argues that to be fully human is to be part of the process, because if not, you're kind of like cutting off a part of your brain. And this is actually something that really takes a significant amount of maturation for especially people schooled in the sciences to recognize. Conversely, people schooled in you know the humanities and social sciences, they have the opposite journey to make, which is that they're so immersed in sort of a communal social way of being and they've never, for example, worked with their hands or soldered a component onto an electronic circuit that they never actually ever learned their own individual relationship with the universe independently of other people. So both are necessary to have a full experience of human. Well, when you gave a talk on on what Silicon Valley can learn from Hannah Arendt, what were one or two of the core ideas from, from that talk? So this is... This was one of the hardest um, things for me to think through. And what I ended up doing was I made a little slide deck based on uh, her book, The Human Condition. Then I think I wrote an article called How to Make History. So the core of uh, Arun's book is uh, a little model she has of, um, think of it as three or four subspecies of human based on how you sort of Uh, exist in the world. So there's the human as a laboring animal. There's the human as the maker. And this maps to Silicon Valley very well, the maker human, homo faber, as she calls it. And then there is what she calls the acting human, the politically conscious acting human who is actually capable of making history. And I think this model is very useful because I see Silicon Valley in particular as having a certain amount of arrested development at the maker level, which is not the most complete way of being human. The the sort of ersatz way of evolving beyond being a maker or being a doer is to, you know, go into politics. But that's kind of a naive way of thinking about it. It's not a change of societal role that we're talking about. It's more how you relate to people. When you're a maker, what you do is maybe you build a product, you put it out there, people either like it or not. You're communicating with the world at large, not just nature, but other humans, by putting like an artifact out there that sort of exists and degrades and then gets thrown into the landfill, maybe that's being a maker. You're not actually talking. You're not appearing in public in the human race and saying anything. You're putting like a little proxy of yourself that's non-living out there. And that's your presence in the world. And economics is a slight extension of that, which is you're out there in the world, but all you're doing is, you know, trading, you're quoting prices and accepting prices. And that's where another level of arrested development where you know, market fundamentalists get stuck. Another level at which maker types get stuck is art. So this is on the humanities side. It's very similar to Silicon Valley in many ways, where artists 
somehow think that the art should speak for themselves. So they make this piece of art that's kind of like, you know, making an engineering artifact and put it out there and let it speak for itself. So all these are the limit of the maker-doer way of being in the world. And what Arendt, I think her big intellectual contribution was, was to recognize that there is a fuller, larger way of being in the world, which is actually appear in public and say things and do things that are politically consequential. And you will get that wrong quite often. And then you have to say sorry and other people have to forgive you. And you have to be part of the uh, dialectic of acting, succeeding, failing, asking for forgiveness, being forgiven, being part of that dialectic, which I think is a fundamentally uncomfortable place for makers to be because makers and um, also business people and market people in general, they're very uncomfortable with the idea of actually saying something and being in a dialogue with anybody else who significantly differs from them. They would rather have their work speak for themselves and not appear in public at all. And I think that's something Silicon Valley really needs to learn to get better at. If there's anything else you could uh, add, edit, or delete from Silicon Valley culture that you think would make it more interesting or effective, what comes to mind? Add, edit, or delete. (laughs) I think these things kind of have a life of their own. And asking a question like that is like asking which leg or arm would you amputate? And in a way, if you added, deleted, or subtracted anything, it wouldn't be Silicon Valley, right? It would be something else. So in that sense, the question is a little bit ill-posed. But I think there is something you could say is going on right now that is, in fact, a natural evolution. Some of it is very obvious. For example, the uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency era of technology, it's, it's drawing technological leadership away from the valley proper and it's spread all over the world. It's um, it's sort of the next Silicon Valley is not a place, but um, sort of a sector that's distributed over the web, right? So there's that kind of like ground level action that's happening that represents uh, evolution in the nature of the beast. Uh, there's also, I think, certain amounts of uh, natural evolution happening in the way the capital markets are structured around how Silicon Valley works. There's parts of it that's beginning to look more like Wall Street. The amounts are getting bigger. Private markets, this has been going on for more than a decade. You go longer and longer and more and more value capture happens in private markets and public markets and the S&P and retail investors are increasingly getting shut out of broad-based prosperity and growth. And that's, I think, something Silicon Valley has to reckon with, has to figure out how to create ways for broad-based prosperity to become part of the story again, because um, that's something that's kind of vanished. Like you just saw the thing by a lot of CEOs, the letter signed by a lot of CEOs, which was, uh, you know, shareholders aren't the only stakeholders, there are other stakeholders. So that's, that's the sort of thing Silicon Valley needs to think about as well, but not in that very... I don't know, press release kind of way, which was almost a cynical power play between shareholders and managers in that case, uh, but something more genuine along those lines. And I'm not quite sure how to do that. I don't know, things like Kickstarter kind of did a little bit of that. Uh, you, you were a product hunt, right? I mean, so th- there's, a, there's a whole layer of Silicon Valley that's kind of inching its way towards broadening the base of the prosperity that Silicon Valley creates. But it's not clear that, there are natural paths of growth that will actually get us there. So it might take some inorganic amputation by external forces to do it. So I don't know what those are, to be honest. 
if you were spending a year, uh, you were in Andreessen in what, 2015? 2014, mostly. If you were there in 2019, 2020, do you think you'd be working on what you just described or what do you think you'd be researching or working on relative to what you were you know, working on back then, which was sort of the beginnings of the software scene in the world? So that's a question I've asked myself a lot uh, since I've been trying to write a second season of the essays on my own and that's gotten delayed. I don't know how I'm going to do that one, but a couple of sort of five years later perspectives on that. One is... Uh, and, uh, by the way, I've um, continued talking to Mark and um, others, uh, so the conversation didn't end there. So I, I still have like associations with them. Uh, I don't think I would do as much different. There would just be a lot more data to make that case I made in the original Breaking Smart essays. And when I look back, it's kind of shocking just how I don't know, perfectly correct I was in making the predictions. So the two things I got wrong were how quickly it would happen. So I had like a whole, uh, I think two or three of the essays and a couple of the slides in the slide decks were about how a particular response to software eating the world is uh, uh, going to happen, a reactionary response and cautioning against that and should we should not do exactly what we ended up doing. So that was a prediction that I hope wouldn't come true, but it didn't, it did. Uh, so basically it was like, we were at a fork in the road in about 2015, which was like, you know, Part A and part B, and I was kind of like screaming my head off, don't go down road A, go down road B. And the world on the whole picked road A. So that was one thing that I hope wouldn't happen that did. And the other thing is a lot of things that I thought would take 10 years happened in two, which was the severity and intensity of the political backlash and the you know social turmoil that followed. I thought we would be where we are today in 2025. So that's kind of my retroactive assessment of um, what I did then. So what would I do if I were to do the same work today? It would still be software eating the world. I would just have four or five more years of data. I think the fundamental principles that we applied back then, which came out of conversations with Mark and others, they're still sound. They're exactly the same principles. They just have more data to work with and uh, they would lead to, I guess, slightly darker conclusions today. Well, I'm curious as to those. When I hear software eating the world, I sort of that with markets eating the world the world is becoming more market oriented uh, and there there have been you know sectors that don't want to become market oriented like healthcare and you know elements of healthcare elements of edu- education but also this idea of you know like investing in people like income share agreements mm-hmm. you know the, so i guess how, you know, I, as and i sort of call that like the response to markets in the world is sort of like tribalism is eating the eating the like it's anti market marketism and so how do you sort of think about that battle and think about where markets will go or won't go or should go or shouldn't go? And, and is it is it fair to equate software with markets eating the world? So that's uh, my buddy Taylor Pearson's thesis. So he wrote a blog post on um, Ribbon Farm, which is really big and comprehensive, which is markets eating the world. That was the title of the post. And he made a really solid and comprehensive argument, uh, which uh, in the original draft of the essay I read, um, he was working more with a blockchain-centric view, but then he expanded the argument to markets in general. And I think that's a very solid version of that argument. And I think, yes, it is a solid argument. And I would say on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I totally believe that argument, and that's the way the future is going to shape up. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I tend to believe that, uh, yeah, the reaction is probably stronger than the markets eating the world force. So in a way, I think what's going to happen is uh, 
both sources are both forces are much stronger than people realize like the forces making markets more powerful like you know price discovery is easier more and more information is flowing you have mechanisms like the blockchain to like you know level up the infrastructure so markets the fundamental pillars of market ways of solving problems are getting stronger and stronger the world economy is becoming this giant uh, equilibrium computing um, machine that's getting better and better at it uh, so that's one thing but on the other hand the opposite of a market which like you pointed out is something that's the generalization of tribalism so some zone of priceless values where it's like all right not everything has a price on it we have this inherent value based sense of what's infinitely priceless and there's a certain calculus of pricelessness that operates there i wrote an article about this i think 6 7 years ago called the economics of pricelessness that laid out some i don't know an axiomatic uh, view of how that world works uh, but that's been getting stronger too right i mean the same exact forces that have made markets stronger have also made the economics of pricelessness much stronger it's now possible to connect to anybody in the world and create like a priceless bond with them it's possible to get your 23 and me dna profile and create a really really deep genetic genealogy and if you want to be a racist you can do it with haplogroups now so it's uh, both sides of the equation are getting stronger at the same time and this is like asking all right there's a sumo wrestling match going on and you're taking off two weak sumo wrestlers and putting into really much bigger sumo wrestlers it's no easier to predict the future now than it was when both forces were much weaker but i think what we can say is because both forces are stronger both will end up in forms that we don't necessarily recognize from today's perspective so uh, markets of the future may not look anything like what we think of as markets of today priceless economics things like mass movements may look nothing like say the religions of today and the two might also you know they will exist in their separate versions but they may also exist as uh, in weird combined forms uh, like you know smart contracts what the hell are they there's some sort of weird mesh of uh, the market like characteristics of a negotiation and the contract like characteristics that might be inside a mission oriented corporation right so smart contracts are a sort of a mashup of market like and non market like elements in a single uh, instrument so interesting things are going to happen there and how do you make sense of sort of this pricelessness uh, dilemma that you know what what truly matters in life for a lot of us can't be measured but you know we tend to only prioritize the things that can be measured and it's also getting a lot easier to measure everything including like how valuable you know how good our friendship is you know and so how how do we sort of get out of this conundrum i don't think there is a conundrum this is kind of uh, a very strong silicon valley bias or tech culture bias that everything can and should and will be quantified i don't think regular people think that way and when you give them technology that is informed by thinking that way they don't use it like it, facebook and twitter and linkedin like have they not impacted how we how we see people or um not really i mean you put those measurement type things in there but that doesn't mean you've eliminated the priceless stuff that goes on i mean think about a very sort of discrete quantified kind of um, action like blocking somebody or unfriending them on facebook at one level it's a very legible measure of uh, social capital so the data scientists at facebook can look at all the data of people friending and unfriending each other and sort of mine the hell out of it they can look at like you know 
all the data that preceded that event and say, all right, we can predict when two people will unfriend each other based on this, this, and this type of interaction. So they can do all that. But if you actually look at what's going on in the relationship, the actual content matters. You can apply all the machine learning you want to sort of try and get a sense of that, try and fingerprint what's happening. And the measures will become perhaps more accurate uh, sort of views of what's going on. But what's going on is not the same as what's being measured. And the danger, and this goes to another of the things I think you mentioned you wanted to talk about, the idea of legibility. So there is a difference between making something legible by measuring it versus killing what is illegible. So just because you're not measuring it does not mean you're killing it. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes you're, you know, cutting down a whole forest and planting a monoculture crop of a single kind of tree, and then it comes to a particular disease and the entire forest dies. That's the authoritarian high modernist version of uh, measurement killing illegibility that James Scott talked about. And one of the things that people get wrong about applying legibility and illegibility as a concept is they think it's an artifact of hierarchies and authoritarian regimes. No, this is not true. It's not the case that dictators and imperialists are the ones who face this problem of authoritarian um, legibilization of things. It can happen in markets. It can happen in very flat kind of situations. So I have this concept I, I like to think of as seeing like a network where if you're building, say, a social graph and having this sort of very flat social space where people can interact without authoritarian structures governing how they interact, it might look like you're allowing illegibility to thrive. But at the same time, you are imposing an authoritarian aesthetic on parts of what's going on, which is you present yourself a certain way on Facebook, right? You put up profile pictures, you have a particular set of uh, biographical data you put up there. So that's a legible view of you that's created by the network. So I think of that as seeing like a network. And sometimes, yes, that will kill the illegible and that'll be costly socially. Sometimes it won't. So how do you think about uh, the priceless, illegible stuff going on. I think the important question to ask is, what are you using to look at it? What are you using to make that reality legible to yourself? And are the mechanisms you're using killing what's illegible to the mechanism? And if it's actually killing it, that's a dangerous thing and you should back off. But if it's not killing it, and illegibility has a way of taking care of itself. So that's kind of a, it's almost a deep optimistic trust in the ability of the priceless stuff to basically take care of itself. And I think it's harder to kill than people think. A very, you know, Silicon Valley or tech framework to building businesses is find information that's not legible and make it legible. Um, And I wonder if the sort of Red Queen effect where you know, there's sort of a direction of, of entrepreneurs and market incentives to make everything legible. And then the pricelessness has to, you know, move somewhere else along the stack, so to speak, or just it's sort of a red queen effect there. Does that resonate or is that not, does that not make sense? I don't know that I would call it a red queen effect. I would call it something like externalities, but a more active sense where it's almost like a, you know, quantum measurement effect in the act of, acting on something with sort of a legibilizing technology, you actually change its very nature, right? So you might sort of measure patterns of pedestrian traffic in a big city and say, hey, lots of people are doing this sort of uh, half a mile to one mile uh, transit, and it's really not a good thing for cars. So I'm going to put a whole bunch of scooters on the sidewalks. And you do that, and you measure everything the scooters are doing and all the users 
but then you realize that in the act of introducing that new element into the urban built environment, you've actually changed the urban built environment. And now it's a new thing that you don't understand, right? Because now you have, I don't know, protesters um, having fun tossing e-scooters into lakes. So this was, I'm sure you've seen things like this. I used to go for walks on the Seattle waterfront back when I was living in Seattle. And several times I saw the share bikes in totally weird places like put up trees tossed into the water and that's what happens and that's you've kind of changed the reality in the act of trying to act on it and therefore it's not so much that pricelessness has moved to another dimension uh, as it's more like a waterbed effect you think you're trying to control something and you push down on one end of a waterbed and something else unintended pops up somewhere else and some parts of it look like positive externalities some parts look like negative externalities and you can model them with economics and some things are just new social weirdness and entanglement that just aren't even comprehended by economics. And it's just a new thing that's happening now. Is it, you know, I'm curious, a lot of people do have resentment, uh, you know, markets entering communities or sort of, you know, people saying you know, transactional behavior ruining sort of this pricelessness that we were talking about. And I wonder if when you improve the tools, like you make a better form of money that takes into account, you know, lack of fungibility between certain, like you, you make the the value measuring tool more emblematic of what, how we really interpret value or are those biases that we have built from our being in a zero sum, you know, a world where we sort of, you know, really value scarcity and exclusivity and should we rise above and see abundance and positive sum? How do you think about that? Uh, Honestly, I'm enough of a tech determinist that uh, I think that particular brand of criticism is mostly noise. Like it, it's it's kind of part of the dialectic. There's going to be a response. You do these things as a technologist, you are going to have a response. Is it that important? I believe not because typically what ends up happening is consumer sentiment and adoption typically trumps anything activists have to say on the matter. And I mean, like take something like, you know, privacy and you've had privacy activists like screaming bloody murder for like 15, 20 years about how much you're exposing to social um, networks and so forth. But users don't care. They're perfectly comfortable just sharing as much as they ever did. And even despite everything that's happened in the last few years, the actual response in the broad population of um, media consumption has been actually very, very tepid. Like a bunch of people have made these sort of very big virtue signaling flounces off the social um, internet and, you know, gone off doing what I call Walden ponding or sort of um, trying to shame corporations into doing better or something. But most people, yeah, they've adapted a little bit. Maybe they've gone a little bit into more private fora, like, you know, messenger messengers and Slack instead of Twitter. They've adapted um, to the toxicity in the environment a little bit by, kind of hardening their social behaviors. Like, for example, I now am much more free with my muting and blocking than I used to be. And it's like, I've gotten, I've grown a thick skin in that department. I've gotten better at like just tuning out trolls. So adaptation is happening and the natural response of people actually using the technology is way more important than anything activists and um, I don't know. Chatterati critical people writing in the New Yorker have to say about it. And ultimately they don't matter. So I, I ignore them. What do you think the sort of, um, you know, sovereign individual, Patrick Friedman, Balaji uh, crowd 
I'm big fans of a lot of respect for it. What do you think they misunderstand, if anything, or, or where do you differ from them uh, about their views about, you know, the charter city movement and, you know, governments having less power over time because, you know, crypto will sort of, you know, separate money and state. Like when you think about their, the utopia that they out- outline, do you have a different utopia? Do you think that they have it? Do you have a different assumption starting point than uh, they do? I don't traffic in utopias to, uh, for starters. It's a, sort of a consistent theme in all my work in writing is utopian thinking is stupid. Like high modernism stupid? Like it's like the same error it's, that... It's just not how the world works. Like utopian thinking is a part of the human psyche and it's almost like, you know, middleware on the way to doing things, but it doesn't actually represent anything real. So it's almost like belief in the afterlife. Like I'm, I don't know if you're religious. I'm not. I think no. most traditional religions are, uh, to be honest, intellectually stupid. So, but belief in an afterlife, belief that there is a heaven and a hell that you will get to, it's sort of a social reality. It may not be a literal reality. It may not be something you actually experience, but believing that there is such a thing shapes behaviors in the present, right? People act in certain ways for better or worse in the belief that they will end up in heaven or hell. So utopias and dystopias have that kind of forcing function effect on human thinking, but as literal constructs of uh, to believe in or work towards, I think they're ridiculous. That's not something uh, I totally work with. But okay, about the specific one you're talking about, which I think of as the uh, libertarian utopia, basically, it's a sovereign individual. Yeah. Uh, I would say, first of all, I think they're wrong. And they're wrong in a very interesting way. So uh, I, I don't waste time on people who are wrong in boring ways. The libertarians are wrong in an interesting way. So it's actually worth thinking about their ideas and taking specific pieces of uh, what they like and sort of playing with them. Where they go wrong, I think, is in underestimating the depth of sociability in human nature, like just how extremely social of a species we are. So we don't organize in groups because we have to. We organize in groups because we want to. And the larger the group and collective we are capable of engineering, given any particular social engineering technology, the larger we'll get to. So if there's a way to create an organization in which all 7.5 billion people on the earth today can have a role and all sort of be part of this huge starship earth, that's kind of like, you know, a Star Trek starship, we would do that. There's something in humans that actually wants to connect to the largest social realities it can. And this goes back to the Hannah Arendt point I talk about, which Silicon Valley is really obtuse about, which is the fullest experience of being human arises out of being deeply connected to other humans while allowing them to be human. So not you know in a mass movement sense. And there is a certain sense in which you cannot experience at the level of, say, a 10, 15% hunter-gatherer tribe, which is kind of the libertarian utopian unit. At that level, you cannot experience what it is like to live in a big city like Los Angeles. So that's something I think libertarians in general miss, which is that there's levels and levels of aggregation and social, social possibility to the human condition. There is nothing like a natural human scale of 10 to 15. It is a complete conceptual error to think that humans are somehow in the paleolithic era genetically programmed to really love life in 10-15% groups. This is just wrong. Like you go to a rock concert, there's a stadium full of like 100,000 people or whatever swaying in time to a single beat of music. 
that's an aggregate that could not exist in Paleolithic times, but people voluntarily go to, and they love the feeling of being connected with that musical vibe to this absolutely huge crowd, right? You go to the Kumbh Mela in India, which is the largest religious festival in the world and the largest human gathering ever. That's, I think, a couple of million people on the banks of the Ganges. Yeah. At the same time, people also love segregating into like-minded or, or like, um, like, like groups segregate together in, in Norway. Yeah, it's awesome. yeah. Yeah, both both are true, right? I mean, everybody loves to go off by themselves alone in the forest to meditate for a while, maybe, or do something under them, themselves. We like being in family groups of three to four. We like being in pack groups of like uh, uh, six or seven. We like being in little hunter-gatherer groups of 15 to 30. We like being in Dunbar groups of 150 or tribal villages of 500. We like every scale of aggregation. Right. So why doesn't every group get their own Israel? <laughs> and not just, you know, religious groups or race groups or but interest groups or you know because i think most people don't want them like there's a particular personality that really wants to wall itself off and be the chosen people and kind of like create a social cultural world around themselves most people like doing that i don't know on weekends as part of a hobby like i don't know maybe you like cosplaying marvel cinematic universe characters and on weekends you go hang out with other marvel fans and dress up as iron man but that doesn't mean that's the only thing in your life, right? So most of us kind of enjoy being part of lots of things. Sometimes we like being part of our little domestic circle. Sometimes we like traveling to a foreign country and being the stranger and completely immersing ourselves in a completely alien world. So yeah, I think it takes a particular kind of personality in a particular situation to actually want the experience of being a chosen people in a promised land. But most people would see that as an impoverished existence and hate it. So it's, so it's, I, I would, I would almost call it uh, something of a psychological disease. Like wanting that is being mentally ill. Right. And uh, if, if the obvious question of, if you don't believe in utopias or, or working towards a utopia, does that sort of me imply that the status quo is likely to, to reign if we're not working towards something else? No, absolutely not. And this is an idea I wrote about a little bit in Breaking Smart and I've cited since then. So it's, uh, what's his name? Jeffrey Long, I think, uh, the economist. Um, He calls it slouching towards utopia. So if you look at the mechanisms that have driven progress over the last several hundred years, you know, liberal democracies, markets, the idea of, um, you know, individual rights, all these things, there are these little micro mechanisms that create this overall sort of um, slouchy progress where things are constantly improving, but not towards any specific utopia. So any particular attachment to a given utopia, if you have that, you're going to be disappointed. But things are progressing. And if you're looking for your promised land with your promised people, it'll look like decline to you. But if you don't have such an attachment to a specific utopian vision, you'll kind of see that little stumbles and fits and starts things are slowly improving and if you're open-minded enough you can actually participate in that sense of uh, progress and i think this is something that is probably one of the greatest achievements of um, western civilization in particular in the last uh, several hundred years which is creating a set of mechanisms that together create this slouching towards utopia arc of history that is not tied to a particular utopian vision of how the world should be. So it's just a force that creates gradual improvement. So I, I love it. And I think people who don't get this, one of the best things they can do to learn how this stuff works is to read the Discworld novels of Terry Pratchett, because that's a little 
cartoon sci-fi fantasy universe that runs along those lines and really gets at how it works. Yeah. Recently, or maybe it was a couple of years ago at this point, you made a uh, sort of map slash battlegrounds of all the, the culture wars that are going on in all the different <laughs> groups from, I don't know, you know, 15 different, different groups or so. I'm curious how you think that's evolved uh, in the last few years and the culture wars generally. And then also there was this tweet the other yesterday from Eric Weinstein, which sort of echoed what you said earlier about genetic fitness, like maybe in the future, it's small people who can find potatoes. He said, you know, there's typically this idea that there's a market of ideas and the good ideas win. Uh, but actually it's, it's to echo your point, genetic, the idea is maximized for fitness win. And we, and he, he went to, as far as to say, we should discourage the bad ideas that are still fit. And I'm curious just how you make sense of sort of the, um, the, the culture wars, but also sort of the marketplace of, of ideas and what we should or shouldn't be doing from a, okay. re, not legal regulatory, but shaming regu- regulatory, if yeah. anything. So I think that chapter of the great weirding is over. So I think the larger dynamic going on is what I've been calling the great weirding, which um, I learned this later. The original version of the phrase was global weirding, and it was specifically about climate change. I kind of independently came up with the great weirding where I have a larger bucket of things going on. Uh, Climate change, economic transformation, inequality, culture war, everything is in that bucket. So there was a period between Gamergate and Trump getting elected when the culture wars in the sense that we who are very online think of it, which is, you know, people fighting each other on Twitter, uh, canceling each other and uh, getting upset about being politically correct, accusing each other of political correctness. That piece of the culture war, I think it's basically over. When it first started and went mainstream, people were kind of shocked by it. People like me, since we, are, we have been very online for 15 years, uh, we kind of saw the early stages of that as early as like, you know, when NRX was blowing up uh, in 2009 to 10 and Gamergate and all those early things. We were kind of spectators or casual participants back then. But when it hit the mainstream around 2015, people were kind of totally weirded out and disoriented by it. And I think since then what's happened is most people have kind of adapted to that existence and kind of adjusted their behavior appropriately. So they know now, for example, that there are certain things you don't say if you don't want to get canceled. And it's like, neither a big deal that you turn into your life's mission to stop, nor something that you're stupid enough to provoke needlessly, right? So most people are actually choosing to just go around the culture war as we understand it, rather than go into it and actually fight it. And because that's happening, I think the, and this is a good thing, the center of gravity of the great weirding has shifted away from the culture war proper to things like, you know, climate action, to things like, the trade war, that's like, you know, a follow-on, knock-on consequence. And the culture war itself, it's kind of degenerated into this stalemate between a few factions who are fighting over things that I think a lot of people, including me, have concluded are not worth fighting over. So political correctness, I think it's like a sideshow. It's honestly not important. Like people who get all worked up about it and spend their entire lives and building new websites and intellectual movements around it. It's like, come on, find so something that's better. That's basically what the intellectual dark web is, is fighting, right? Yeah, I think. Uh, first of all, I don't... I, I, I've known a bunch of the people who have since gotten tagged with that label since before that label was there. I've met Eric, I've uh, met Jordan Peterson, I've met a couple of others. And as individuals before this whole 
thing blew up, uh, I got along well with them. I mean, they're, everybody's kind of doing their own thinking and exploring whatever interests them. And I think labeling it, tagging it, and circling wagons around it and calling it the intellectual dark web was almost a mistake, a bad kind of like uh, an error in judgment and reifying something that would have kind of dissolved more easily if it had been just left alone. So quite apart from any philosophical differences I have with the intellectual dark web and how it sort of flirts with crypto fascism, fascism, I think it it sort of has dragged on the culture war longer than it needed to go on. And it's it's still sucking up the energy of a lot of smart people who I think could be doing better things elsewhere. And some people have no choice. They've gotten caught up in it. They've gotten canceled by the left or, you know, uh, hounded by trolls on the right or whatever it is. They have like actual reasons to be upset and um, trying to get their lives back. But most people who are in it are almost like picking at a scab that... Uh, they'd rather they should kind of walk away from so what's post this these people kind of like uh, go into an end game that nobody gives a shit about fighting for control of institutions that are not worth fighting over like who the hell cares what happens to uh, half a dozen literature departments where people are doing critical theory and whether trans activists or uh, traditional feminists control them did you think progress theory was a good idea, by the way? The Patrick Collins and Tyler Cowan uh, progress studies? Uh, meh. Okay. <laughs> I, I was not uh, impressed with that line of thinking at all. Okay, so you said we're, we're moving beyond the culture war, beyond political correctness. What do we start fighting over next? Or, or where, where, what happens after that? I think you can just let those people fight it out and kind of end their own game. It's a sideshow, ignore it. I think the far more intellectually interesting parts of the great weirding that are shaping up now. What's the future of globalization? What's the future of free trade? How are we actually going to get active on climate action? Uh, I think now that the uh, culture wars are kind of like fading a little bit, inequality as a broad theme in discourse is popping back up again. Like if you remember uh, 2013-14, Thomas Piketty wrote his uh, big book on inequality. And for a while, everybody had to have an opinion on Piketty, right? And somehow we forgot about all that for several years while um, Trump and the culture wars were happening. And it's back on the radar. And whether you like or dislike uh, Ocasio-Cortez and her gang, they, I think, have... uh, done one really valuable thing, which is refocus attention on that because we never finished that conversation. And that's a conversation that needs to continue and actually land somewhere productive. And right? what's your conclusion on that conversation? Is what's it the con- red uh, herring or it's just about prosperity or no, no, we... No, there's, there's definitely something real there. And this is one of the things that I think I disagree with a lot of, um, you know, uh, like Mark and I have, uh, Mark Andreessen and I have argued about this a little bit. Uh, I think inequality is actually... It may be a misframing, but it frames something that's real and actual. And uh, if you ignore it, you risk it blowing up in your face. It is something that requires a policy response. It is something that you have to keep trying to frame better than, you know, just inequality or one percenters or whatever. The current, I, let me yeah, make it clear. I don't actually like the current frames around the problem. I don't like thinking in terms of Gini indexes and one percent rhetoric and, Occupy Wall Street, I think those are all futile and ineffective um, ways to respond to what it is. But I think if we keep 
thinking and trying, we will find better frames and we will actually shape good policy responses that uh, inaugurate an interesting new chapter. And to do that, you can look at history a little bit, like, you know, the New Deal in the 1930s, that was a response then. It had its flaws. It has it had its good elements to it. There were similar things in, say, the 1870s. So, yeah, there are historical periods to learn from. So inequality goes up and down as you know e- the economy evolves. So it's not a new problem, but this version of it is new and it requires a very imaginative response that can't just be an uncritical do-over of um, something from the 1930s. That's where I think uh, people like Ocasio-Cortez fail, which is you take an, a phrase like the New Deal, you add green to the front, you call it the Green New Deal, and it's this incoherent piece of... Um, a policy nightmare that has no hope in hell of even, you know, getting to the starting line, let alone actually having a good impact once it gets there. So that's the wrong path to go down, but it is something we have to continue thinking about. I'm curious how you think about uh, shared reality uh, tunnels um, and, and just the meaning crisis in, in general and sort of the pluralism of truth and how we make sense of that. So that is the topic I'm working on for my book. So it's uh, obviously at an early stage now, and my thoughts are not fully formed as yet. But one analogy I like to use is uh, what happened to the history of television, which is you started with, you know, a single television network. Then you got three free-to-air television networks, and there was a big consensus reality created by television, right? So for decades, you had Walter Cronkite telling you that's the way things are. And that's what uh, the peak industrial era was. Uh, Everybody was in one big synchronized reality tunnel. Think of it that way. There was a huge mass consensus culture that everybody participated in. And this was not just American. This was global, right? Like Mickey Mouse was part of global um, reality tunnel. I was growing up in India and I was watching American TV shows as well. So that was then. And of course, at the end of the 80s, what happened was we had the cable revolution and three channels became 300 and at some point it became thousands. And at some point we invented streaming and you can have on demand. And you have this ability now to create your own television consumption experience that's completely and utterly unlike anybody else's if you choose to. So you might, you know, be sampling so. Take my example. I love um, watching reruns of USA Network shows from 10 years ago. I watch a couple of uh, Korean dramas with my wife. Uh, I keep re-watching Futurama. And my particular mix is nothing like what anybody else is watching, but it has some similarities. That's one slice of, I think, a broader phenomenon where any informational element of uh, your environment, you now have complete control to craft as you like. And most of us, of course, aren't going to be imaginative or creative enough to come up with completely unique ways of creating this. So we'll end up, you know, copying each other, forming communities of taste, subcultures. So basically any group that has enough of a coherent shared consensus to want to maintain a reality and a particular view of the world around them, they can look at the world and all the information streaming out of it and create their own little reality tunnel. So we were talking earlier about chosen people and promised lands. So you can, if you want it, create your own promised land online with its own reality tunnel. You can choose your news sources. You can sort of create your confirmation bias fuel coming at you and you can create this reality tunnel. 
And if you do it well, if the narrative is crafted with the right kind of coherence, it becomes almost your own parallel universe with its own timeline. So this is why the connection to temporality comes in, because I think the test of a successful subjective reality tunnel is it feels like its own time zone. So it's not this atemporal chaos or a soup of like, you know, you're trying a random mix of things. No, there's an actual evolving story to the way you're living. There's sort of a clock and a calendar and an evolutionary path that you're pursuing along with a bunch of people. And it's like you've created your own subjective time zone. So that's what I think of as uh, what's happening to basically the human condition when we have our ability to craft our own realities out of information. I'm curious how you differentiate or what's the overlap or difference between truth and meaning. And I sort of this broader idea or I like to think that, you know, religion has been unbundled. There's a community element that's like, you know, soul cycle, CrossFit, uh, and lots of other, you know, things that compete over, over, you know, small groups of people getting meaning over community. And then there's the sort of the truth function and that's both, you know, what is actually happening uh, in, in the world uh, and ha- has happened historically and, and where do I get a sense of, of meaning from? How, how do you think about that? So you're asking two separate and distinct questions. One is uh, epistemology, which is uh, the nature of truth and uh, sort of how you go about finding it and what it means for the way you live. And there my true north is uh, Philip K. Dick's definition of reality, which is that which doesn't go away when you stop believing in it, right? So just because you decide that you don't believe in gravity and step out of a window doesn't mean you're not going to go splat and hit the ground and die, right? So that's the basic principle of reality. But people tend to overstate the strength of that principle. So yes, certain things like gravity have very immediate and sharp consequences if you choose to disbelieve them in very pointed ways. But other things like, you know, socialism or capitalism. Maybe you believe socialism is the truth. Maybe you believe capitalism is the truth. Are there going to be consequences to holding either belief that are like, you know, as drastic as jumping out of a window? No, these are things that will take about 50, 70 years to play out. And even then it'll kind of be up for questioning, right? So if you look at the distribution of things about which you can hold beliefs, there's a narrow category of beliefs where if you choose not to believe them and they continue anyway, they can kill you very quickly. Then there's this wide spectrum of things where you basically can make up your own shit. You can believe all sorts of conspiracy theories. You can believe the earth is flat and it doesn't really hurt you because you're not in any consequential way testing those beliefs. And then there's a third zone of beliefs, which are not really matters of empirical testing at all. So they're more in the metaphysics uh, regime. So that's the epistemological axis of the question you're asking. The other axis you're asking about, which is meaning, is it's almost a placeholder word for a huge condition of mass experimentation. So when you use the word meaning, you can put it in scare quotes and say what that actually refers to is, I don't know, hundreds to perhaps thousands of groups of various sizes, some as small as one or two, some as large as like, you know, Burning Man, which is going on right now, I believe. So all of these groups are running experiments. So it's a condition of massive experiments in answering the question, I guess, what makes life worth willing, uh, worth living and why should you choose life over non-life? Uh, I think that's a good sort of um, ground truth. And so connecting the two of like you know, truth and meaning, a good place to connect truth and meaning is the question of suicide. So uh, Camus in his, um, I forget which work of his, he, I think it was um, the myth of Sisyphus. He said, the only serious philosophical question is that of suicide, right? Every moment that you live, you're, 
by default making a choice of living is better than non-living for the next one minute, right? So you can think of that as an extreme way of putting it. And when you take a step back and ask, why am I choosing this? And should I be in fact choosing the other thing and killing myself right now? Whatever you come up with as a response to that in some way is your answer to the question of meaning. And that's something that it's sort of organic to just choosing to live at all, right? You don't need a lot of um, so, a social infrastructure or even human notions of culture for that. Animals do this. Like every second of the day, uh, a cat or even a cockroach is choosing life over non-life, right? And at the human level, you have a certain amount of agency in choosing non-life. But some animals do too, right? There's the Pacific octopus, I think, that gives birth it i mean it lays eggs and then just goes in a corner and stops eating and dies so for that octopus the meaning of life is layer eggs fertilize them and then go and die so it's not the case that suicide is only a question of meaning to humans but it's a good way for humans to think about the question and what we are doing right now i think as a species is recognizing that all the old sources of systematic answers to the question that life is better than death are basically bankrupt now. Like if you used to look to, say, a traditional religion to uh, figure out why you should live rather than not live, that answer kind of looks silly right now. If you go into hedonism or you think it's about media and you think the reason to keep living is that you can keep watching TV for the rest of your life, those are not satisfying answers, right? So people sense, I think, that even though minute to minute the question of suicide isn't top of mind and you may not, you know, it's not like an existential acute crisis where it's like, oh shit, I have no good answer to the question why I'm choosing to live the next five minutes, therefore I must kill myself. It's not that kind of existential urgency pressure, but it's this broader sense of minute to minute, I don't need a good answer, but if I don't have an answer at the time scale of years, at the time scale of decades, at the time scale of choosing who to marry or whether or not to have kids, at the time scale of is it worth killing myself trying to build a startup? Should I start my novel? These are questions that rely on what you think your answer to the question of life is better than death is. And we are, I think, in an era of like huge experiments with new attempts at finding the answers. 99.99% of them are going to fail. They're going to end up looking like cartoon caricature attempts at doing these things. 0.01% will succeed. They will be, I don't know, copied. Variants will be experimented with. And we'll come out of the other end in 15, 20 years with one of two things happening. As a species, we'll have either decided that, you know, the game is worth continuing the infinite game of humanity as a species is worth continuing. Or we'll have decided that this species is not worth perpetuating and let's just have a bunch of hedonistic fun at the end of the world and let climate change take its course and we all stop having kids and we all grow old and die. So it's it's that kind of species existential suicide moment that we are in right now. And this is not an abstract point, right? Because you do have an aging population. You do have plummeting birth rates. A lot of people are choosing not to have kids. We don't have kids and we have no intention of, um, me and my wife, that is, we have no intention of having kids. And for us, it's the right decision. But I can recognize that at some level, if everybody starts thinking like us, then something very seriously wrong is happening with the species. So I think that's what's happening at the meaning level. And it's 
kind of coupled to, but orthogonal to the question of truth and the nature of truth. Yeah. Do you think that's a problem that we should do anything about? Basically, as you know, people get more wealthy and both parents work, there's sort of less desire to have kids. I would say at a personal level, I'm an antinatalist. I think people who don't want kids should not have kids. And a lot of people should not have kids, period, because they're not capable of giving, uh, bringing children into the world in a way that is actually good for those children. So at the micro level, yeah, I'm strongly in favor of um, controlling the reproductive instinct, so to speak. So I'm speaking as somebody who's opted out of the gene pool, so to speak. But of course, I mean, if the species as a whole starts to choose that option, then at one level, evolution kicks in, right? The future of the uh, human species belongs to those who actually choose to perpetuate it. So if only 1% of uh, people are having children, they, whoever they are and whatever their reasoning, those are going to be what survives. So if it is short people living underground digging for potatoes, that's going to be the future of humanity. More precisely, I wonder if lower, it would actually become genetically more genetically fit to have lower IQ if, if lower IQ people are having more kids. Perhaps. And that's, I think, one of the age-old questions that uh, keeps eugenicists up at night and has been since uh, Darwin and Spencer. And for, uh, it's been, what, 170 years or so since yeah. Darwin? Will there ever, uh, eugenics has obviously been killed because of Hitler and lots of other terrible people. Will, will there ever be a reasonable eugenics? I mean, in the era of CRISPR, right? Like, you know, people will start, you know, you know, modifying diseases and stuff. Will, will there ever be a credible eugenics that you think you get behind? I think there already is and always has been. It's just so, it's, it's like water, right? I mean, people are choosing all the time how to sort of perpetuate the species. They're choosing that in how they, uh, who they choose to marry, what kind of kids they choose to have, what they choose to train them. So in that but sense... There are macro thesis, you know, philosophies that resonate with people and certainly no policy. Well, I guess except China, but. <laughs> so there's, there's levels of uh, thinking about eugenics, right? There's the literal authoritarian version of uh, say people with green beards are better than people without green beards. Therefore we will introduce a CRISPR um, gene into everybody's DNA where people with green beards uh, get killed or something like that. That's the kind of crude science fiction, authoritarian understanding of eugenics. But there's, for example, what uh, the elites have always done, which is, you know, marry amongst each other and elite selection. That's a form of um, sort of social voluntary opt-in control by classes in determining how their own future is shaped up. Uh, then there's things people do to themselves, which might be like, you know, presumably in the future, we'll be able to have designer babies and um, all kinds of splicing of our own bodies. So I, I'm sure that's already happening. In fact, I have heard of cases where people are already doing that with um, surrogacy and donor eggs and things like that. They're trying to actually breed uh, kinds of uh, offspring and futures that they want. So in that sense, eugenics is almost a tautological part of the human condition in that we don't leave evolution to its own devices. We kind of have opinions and find every possible way we can to act on those opinions, whether it's uh, killing girl babies and choosing to have more male offspring, which has been the practice in Asia for so long, or choosing skin color or selecting for IQ or whatever it is, people do it. I mean, humans are a self-breeding species and we're not going to stop doing it. And any tool that's available to continue self-breeding, we're going to continue using it. 
uh, going back to meaning, you know, a lot of people also take, I'm curious how you think meaning in the context of identity is sort of you know, on, on both polls. There's this, there's this, we're talking about sort of the specialization poll earlier of like, Hey, I am a, you know, Hispanic uh, technologist who's also Jewish, you know, like I, you know, meaning in my individual identity. And then there's also sort of this poll that's like, you know, I am one with everybody. We are all interconnected. Like I'm getting rid of my identity. It's like, and then there's also like how in identity works on the internet <laughs> and will there be, you know, pseudonymity or, or how that will evolve over time. What are your, what's your hot take on, on identity basically and how that will evolve? I think everything you just mentioned is part of social identity. So things that arise of the, out of um, what some people call intersubjectivity, how we are viewed by others and how we appear in uh, culture and society. And I think that's actually ultimately the unimportant kind of identity and I pretty much ignore it. I think most people in my sense of the word identity don't have an identity because to have an identity at all, you kind of have to have a social death and rebirth, a kind of resurrection moment. It's like, think of Doctor Who. So Doctor Who regenerates after every few years and becomes a new person, right? And that's a metaphor for a lot of uh, what happens to humans through their lives. Like you go through crisis experiences, you kind of have birth and death of the psyche moments in your life. And until you've have until you've had one of those, you're not even born. So it's like religious people talk about, you know, born again Christians and so forth, but it's sort of a more general psychological concept. You're not yet born until you're born again in a way. So it's your first identity, the starter identity that you're born with that's completely socially determined and into subjective, all that. That's the zone of a lot of culture wars because a lot of people never get beyond that. They never do anything sort of, drastic enough in their lives to go through some sort of um, psychological rebirth where their identity is wiped out and reborn in a new way. Some people never do that. In fact, I would estimate that 60 to 70% of humans never go through enough of a sort of psychic crisis strong enough to experience a rebirth moment. And the culture war is for these people. They're kind of almost the pros of identity, so to speak. And the elite game of identity formation only begins once you sort of killed yourself and been born again sort of uh, at a social level, not the suicide thing we were talking about before. And when you think about it that way, the elements of identity that start to matter don't even have social labels. Like um, you might look at a history of your creative output, like what maybe a company you've built or a big literary work you've done. Having put that out in the world also means you've kind of uh, died and been reborn in the process of creating that. That's an identity that cannot be easily described in social terms, but that's what it means in my terms to have an identity event where you as a person kind of pop from the social context and your default identity. You're kind of past your starter identity. Is there a concept or an idea behind we sort of operate under the idea that we have one true self and if we just listen to it, it'll, you know, have the right answers uh, to us versus the concept of, of many selves or is that is that itself part of the social identity construct and, and less interesting? Yeah, I think the one true self is bullshit. That's a 60s hippie idea that just kind of makes no sense. I'm much more of a constructivist. Your identity is what you make of it through repeated rebirths. And whether it's a single or a single identity or a multiplicity of identities that sort of manifest in different situations, that's sort of almost an artifact of your personal story. 
the one true self you could say is a is a segue into mental models and you talked a bit about or is a mental model the poor one uh you talked about uh, mental models on the farnham street podcast and about how they are basically you know meant to simplify and provide coherence because we can't you know process the world all in one in one go there's just too much happening i'm curious how you think about mental models as it relates to uh emotions uh and and gut and instinct and how you sort of What's your framework for when to listen to it versus when to listen to more abstract, you know, intellectual reasoning and and sort of interplay and trade-offs between the So emotions as a as an aspect of mental models, I think is a very exciting area of um, new thinking and research going on right now. So two sources I would recommend. One is uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's written a wonderful book on uh, the constructivist theory of emotion well worth reading. And the other is um, another of my buddies, Tiago Forte. He's been doing a lot of thinking about it and he gave a keynote at the recent um, Refactor camp that we organize. Uh, the, the video will be online soon, but he's actually done a lot of thinking about how to really create your own personal reality through understanding and embodying your emotional life a lot more deeply. So I think we are just at the beginning stages of thinking as deeply about emotional mental models as we already do about, you know, cognitive mental models for, uh, I don't know, investment decisions or uh, whatever else we already kind of do. Naval tweeted the other day, for example, take emotions out of any decision and watch how much better your decision-making, you know, you were talking earlier, like, you know, what job should I stay at? Who should I be with? Et cetera. Do you think that's bullshit? Do you sympathize with that? Half right? I think it's wrong. Yeah. Emotions are a very deep and true part of who we are as um, humans. And my response to that is you're kind of like experiencing the human condition in a very reductive way by thinking that way. Like emotions can be a, a sort of tax or a burden or a compromising force in how you think. But if you come at them another way, they can really, really amplify the depth and richness and quality and imagination of your thinking and decision-making. So yeah, you totally have to integrate emotionality into all your thinking as much as you can. Do you, do you accept the framing or find this too reductive that there's sort of feedback loops based to help us, you know, uh, survive and reproduce um, based on societies that looked, you know, the prehistoric societies of what they were sort of built for or wired for over time. And that, maps um, a lot to, to today, but not entirely on the bounds of survival and reproduction, you know, road rage being like one example that doesn't really make sense today and is somewhat overlapping with our happiness, but not always. And thus on a case by case basis, it's almost like a false alarm of, of uh, an alarm that, you know, uh, that is sometimes wrong, maybe often wrong, but when it's right, it's really right. And so you're really glad it's there, even though it brings a little bit too much. I guess what I said, does that resonate at all? Or is that now nah, that that seems way too reductive or, or doesn't make sense in terms of the right. Another way of framing it, you wrote this, um, this post, I think it was 12, the rules, like everyone should have their own rules and you sort of create almost like a mad libs, like rule for this rule for that rule, for, rule for this based on basically to sort of, what were you trying to do there? Train, you know, sort of default responses to different situations so that you would be best prepared for them. So the, Post you're talking about uh, making your own rules it came out of a bunch of thinking I was doing um, on a little sort of triangular model I have that's kind of almost a weird personal idiosyncratic model of just how to think about everything. 
So it's a map of everything. So it's a little triangle and the three vertices are thinking about physical reality, thinking about private internal reality, and thinking about external social reality. And the inside of the triangle, think of it as getting more and more close to the void, thinking in sort of fragments and memes and unstructured ways, that's the inside of the triangle. And as you go to the center of the triangle, you're in the void. And as you go outside, you get into much more structured and mental model enabled ways of thinking about anything. So that's my map of everything. And I have a scheme for mapping anything you're thinking about on that uh, structure. And the way the sort of biological sort of inspiration for that is something in the brain. So the brain has two processing modes. One is called the default mode network. We just think of it as like open-ended, intuitive, um, speculative thinking, dreaming, all that stuff is a default mode network. And what used to be called the task positive network, which is learned skills, habits, and things that are much more in a box. So the outside of my triangular model is task positive thinking. The inside is default mode thinking. And I think what I was trying to do there with my cues and mad libs, as you call it, for creating your own rules is getting in touch with both sides of your cognitive life and where you're thinking and wonder. So your thoughts can go all over the place. Some people never go into the inside of the triangle. Some people never go to the outside. Some people stay constantly at one vertex of the triangle, never visiting the others. So the broader purpose of that triangle is to give you a way to become aware of and explore all the thought spaces you are capable of thinking. So it's almost like, all right, this is the map. Go do some thinking on every part of it. Go explore parts of your own ability to think that perhaps you've not explored before. So that was the purpose there. And as far as the actual prompts themselves go, that was almost like a little joke I was kind of making up at um, kind of the expense of uh, the uh, Jordan Peterson 12 rules book that was out at the time and doing the rounds. And I was like, all right, I'm going to have some fun with that concept. Yeah. And another concept related to meaning and truth um, or, or that affects it or reality certainly is, is advertising. And you recently had a tweet that says advertising got us in this mess and mark my words, it's going to get us out. <laughs> what <was that> <laughs> Were you serious there? What does that mean? That's one of the shit posty things that I often say, and I hope it means something real. And if it turns out to be prescient three years later, I can point to something and say, Hey, I called it. <laughs> but I mean, there is, it wasn't hundred percent shit post. I think there's something there like, one of my thinking heuristics is if everybody is sort of getting all noble and virtuous about something being universally bad, but it's like a huge part of human existence, I'm like, all right, there's a disconnect there and there's probably something fundamentally core to the human experience that's there that we are missing. And once we recognize what that is, that'll probably be a good thing and we'll want to you know, keep it in some form. So that's what I think people are missing when they are kind of universally critical of uh, basically the world's economy becoming a digital economy and the digital economy becoming an advertising economy. They think it's like some kind of descent into dystopian nightmares. I think, no, if advertising is such a huge part of the way the world works today, there's something there that's fundamental to who we are. And when we recognize that, it'll actually be the key to interesting futures. Yeah. You you mentioned, uh, you know, you don't uh, traffic in utopian thinking, but do you traffic in dystopian thinking? I mean, you, you, I think you tweeted about sort of the evil Ted, the debt, or like, yeah, or is that more just entertainment rather than? It's entertainment. I mean, dystopian thinking is 
fun. Utopian thinking is boring as fuck, but dystopian thinking gives you some of the best entertainment possible. So yeah, I traffic in dystopian thinking for fun. You know, some people think that history has inevitability to it. Obviously, there's the Fukuyama end of history argument. Uh, Robert Wright wrote this book called Non-Zero, which is basically saying, you know, uh, if you look at history, uh, both culturally and biologically, it's in a, it's more or less or obvious that it's um, it, it's an increasing set of you know, increasingly complex, you know, uh, interactions over time, non-zero sum games as opposed to zero sum games, and that our only options are to either prosper in increasing complexity or, you know, World War Three, you know, die in nuclear war. Do you, do you accept sort of or, or, or bristle any sort of inevitability? What was inevitable that we would beat the Nazis, etc. Like, you know, that's... so I'm what you you could call sort of a statistical historicist. As in, I'm not a historicist in the sense of believing that there's a fundamental universal principle driving history in a certain way. Uh, I think it is an empirical matter of fact that the arc of history has a certain shape and tendency to it, but I don't think there's any fundamental reason it necessarily has to be that way. In other words, I think it's just, it's like, have you heard of the anthropic principle, which is a very cute little thought experiment of um, around why there is life on earth? or in this universe. So those are the weak and strong anthropic principles. And the argument basically goes that there is life because only if there was life would somebody be around to even ask the question, what is life? So something like that. It's almost like, a, or, or if you ask why are conditions on earth? So that was the, I think, weak anthropic principle. And the strong one is how come conditions on earth are perfect for complex human intelligent life to evolve and invent, you know, spacecraft and stuff. The answer is kind of like tautologically obvious because if it wasn't, there wouldn't be an advanced species around asking that question, right? So for that to happen, there's almost a statistical tautology at work there. And I think that's true of, in a softer way of uh, all historicist thinking. I mean, of course, history is going to look like a non-zero sum increasing complexity game of uh, you know, sophisticated evolution, because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here asking why it is that way, right? So there's an anthropic uh, principle question. So in that sense, it's a uh, trite question. But I think there's also a deeper question that you can ask, which is, all right, what are the statistics of that? Under what conditions can it continue? Can it actually sort of stabilize itself? Can it find a broader base of like robustifying itself? Or is it necessarily a random experiment and the asteroid hits us and we all die? So yeah, there's that's, that's interesting places to go from that starting point. You know, you, one thing you read a lot about is status or I've written a bit, a bit about, there's this concept I saw on the internet, <laughs> some dark corner of the internet called bio-Leninism, which basically uh, compares sort of the, it says that, you know, Leninism was about rich people promising poor people status by raising their, you know, economic situation. And that sort of, it backfired. Uh, it is in Russia, it backfired because, you know, that's not a long-term strategy because people rise up or rise down and, and thus are, are not loyal. And also uh, the West as a counter to that was just more appealing. And that bio-Leninism today is a similar promise between the, you know, the, the higher status and the lower status um, by saying, hey, vote for me, I'll, I'll raise your status, but it's a pact instead between rich or poor, between sort of, you know, white people of a certain disposition and different races and gen- genders. And really, it, it's a mutual pact to increase everyone's status against the even richest white people. Is there interesting truth there? Or is that totally reductive and wrong? 
I think there's an element of that that's basically conventional wisdom amongst um, sociologists and anthropologists. So there's uh, this notion called hypodescent that uh, you can look up. I think there's papers and books on it. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, throughout history, yeah, there have been social hierarchies and, you know, there have been movements up and down uh, ladders of caste and race and things like that. So part of it is basically just conventional subject matter. The internet has this way of taking things that are kind of boring, conventional scholarly wisdom and putting this sort of radical conspiratorial spin on them and sort of getting all worked up about it. So I think part of what you're describing sounds to me like you could probably find several chapters in lots of anthropology and sociology textbooks that talk about this in a fairly boring way. So that part, I suspect there's some substance to it. Other parts of it kind of sound like, I don't know, random internet crack pottery. And I think that's generally true of most of these things you find in the wild and the internet. There's like a small element of, I don't know, randomly rediscovered autodidact truth. That's how I think of it. Like there's probably some corner of academia where like people have been toiling in obscurity for several generations to come up with like very boring papers and books. Nobody reads about something. And somebody online on Reddit or somewhere has an insight that gets at like 10% of that, gets all excited about it, and then proceeds to build this huge crackpot theory on top of it. And then that gets really popular. And then somebody goes and discovers the scholarly literature. And then you have a nice bit of um, internet confusion. So that dynamic repeats itself over and over again. What you're describing sounds like it's um, in that category, like 10% probably something academics already think about that way and 90% crack pottery that gets and people worked up. Speaking of crack pottery that gets people worked up, what do you think is the biggest thing that the neo-reactionary movement misunderstands or, or misses? I think they overestimate the value a typical human places on the notion of sacredness. So the instinct towards sacredness is there in humans. Like people kind of have a sense of what is sacred and respond in certain ways to the sense of being in the presence of the sacred. And to some people, it's a very, very strong feeling. And from it, all sorts of things like, you know, a strong purity drive or a strong conservative drive or a strong sort of racial purity drive, all sorts of responses emerge from having a strong sensitivity to sacredness. But I think the median human is not actually that sensitive to notions of the sacred. And uh, the median human is kind of this half-ass mediocre person who's like kind of casually going through the motions around things that are sacred to a core group of people. This is one element of Zizek's, uh, Slavoj Zizek's uh, thinking that I really like, which is he, he's got this essay, I think it's, it's something like cynicism as ideology or something like that. I, I'll have to look it up. But the idea being that uh, there's this kind of person who thinks that there's the world comprises this mass of people who are laboring in the darkness and need to be enlightened. And once they're enlightened, they will see the truth and sort of worship the right sacred thing and the world will be a better place. So that's kind of a typical way sacredness driven people think. And Zizek's point is that's not how ideology works. That's kind of how ideologues think ideology works but the way it actually works is most people kind of just go through the motions and make cynical little jokes around the water cooler about whatever the prevailing ideology is. And that culture of cynicism around a core of sacredness 
is how ideology actually exists in practice and evolves. And, and it doesn't matter what ideology you're talking about, all ideologies work like this. And any political imagination that's based fundamentally on taking the sacred seriously kind of flounders uh, against the sort of rock of this human reality that humans are fundamentally not that serious about things that ideologues think should be taken seriously. So that's, that's I think, where they fundamentally kind of go wrong in all their analysis. So what were you trying to do in the unflattening Hobbes piece? What was sort of the main takeaway from there? If you look at history and sort of um, anarchic conflict, political scientists really love the notion of anarchy as a starting point for institution building. So that's where the Hobbesian state of nature thought experiment uh, comes from, right? There's this um, notional state where it's a war of all against all. And at some point, some larger structures start to emerge. People band together, maybe they form roving gangs, and then they are like uh, roving bandit states, then the stationary bandits. And they have this sort of almost spherical cow idea of how political history evolves. And there's, there's some interesting thought experiment like Truths to It. Uh, the show Deadwood, for example, is a really good fictional representation of uh, humans evolving from the state of nature to an advanced society. And when you try and play this video in reverse, you get a particular kind of dystopian anarchist utopia. So by the way, a lot of dystopias are actually utopias in disguise because the people who are after those dystopias love the idea of it. So a lot of anarchic Hobbesian conflict scenarios are actually utopias in disguise preferred by people who would love to be in a state of anarchy fighting with each other all the time. And that's the traditional understanding of what Hobbesian conflict is. And what I was getting at in the unflattening Hobbes piece is that it doesn't have to be that way. You can have this condition of war of all against all that is not, in fact, an anarchy. You can have a stable social order. You can have a built environment. You can have civilization. You can have the United Nations, nation states. You can have corporations, all sorts of things. And you can still have a condition where it's a war of all against all at all levels. And this is unflattening because instead of this and a flat structure where it's all against all at one level, it's more a hierarchy of you and, so there's an Arab saying, I believe, it's like you against me, you and me against our cousin, you and me and my cousin against those people over there. So it's like this bootstrapped hierarchy of conflict levels. And that's the tribal version of the hierarchy, which is much simpler, but you can have this societal version of this hierarchy. And one of the things I was exploring in that piece is, are we actually entering that kind of Hobbesian conflict uh, condition? And that's, by the way, what I was uh, going back to something we were talking about earlier of um, the center of gravity of the great weirding, moving away from the culture war zone to other places. You can think of that as a cancerous conflict condition metastasizing, metastasizing into the broader body politic. And I think that's a future worth speculatively thinking about. It's a dystopian, so it's kind of fun to think about simply because it's dystopian. But I think it gets at certain things that are happening. If, if you didn't say already, is there a place where you see the great weirding moving to? Like, we're in the culture wars, now it's X? Climate, or- uh, climate action. So climate is uh, turning into going from important to urgent and like a slow developing crisis to a really falling off a cliff crisis much faster than people thought it would. So I think that's going to be, yeah, great weirding equals climate change in the next decade. And what's that going to look like? Is it going to be a continued war between people who think it's overstated and people who 
Or is, or is it going to be? Oh, that, that's over. That's over. The climate denial movement is basically a sideshow now. It doesn't matter. We are already in the phase of the game entirely belongs to people who believe it's happening. And the question is, what do, what do they think they need to do about it? So, you know, like uh, what you call climate hawks versus climate doves, people who believe nukes are the nuclear power is part of the solution versus not. People who think that the coming huge refugee crisis from, um, you know, climate change zones to safer parts of the world, how to deal with it, whether to build walls or to build networks where, you know, migration can be safely handled. So it's, it's come down to that level of uh, tactical detail almost. You know, there's this saying, um, you know, we have godlike technology, paleolithic emotions and uh, medieval institutions. And some people think that the um, you know, way for progress is to improve the institutions, i.e. the incentives. And so you know, it's a lot of the crypto community is excited about you know, better aligning uh, incentives um, so that people don't have to change, but that, that their actions will because of these incentives. And then there's, you know, other parts, you know, Christianity and other, other sort of cultural movements that are trying to code better people through different practices and, and, you know, approaches and perspective, mental models and perspectives. Do you have a say on what's, what's more effective or what we should focus on, or is it obviously both? And so this actually connects to the meaning conversation we were having earlier about we are in an era of widespread experimentation in ways of making meaning. And remember what I said there, which is experimentation in making meaning is really experimentation in getting better answers to the question of suicide. Like, should we die or should we live? And that question, it becomes more important, urgent, and acute when there are big uh, crises like uh, climate action going on. Like, asking, should I live or should I die, when you're fundamentally comfortable and nothing big is being disrupted in the environment, that might be a question of, like, uh, you know, do I have a meaningful life? Am I doing meaningful work? Do I have good relationships with people? But asking the same question, should I live or should I not live in a condition of extreme crisis? Maybe there's flooding. Maybe there's refugees coming into your town. Maybe your whole city has been overrun with like people in um, you know, uh, slum-like tents. Maybe there's starving, dying people. Everything is miserable. The only things around that it's possible to do is like, you know, try and help the suffering. There's not much fun to be had. Maybe Hollywood is dead and there's no movies to escape to. In that condition, do you choose to live or die? Is it still meaningful to seek to continue to live when all you have available to you, you know, raw material for making meaning is solving really hard crisis problems and alleviating suffering. If that's what you have to face with, is it still worth living, right? So the questions of meaning making, they're becoming more urgent now, in part because old answers have failed. So going to a quote of, you know, medieval institutions, value emotions and stuff like that. So old ways of meaning making are failing. But the other part is uh, the urgent pressure to actually come up with answers that are solid enough and robust enough to get us through what is going to be a really tough time for a lot of people in lots of parts of the world. There is, for a lot of people in the next 15, 20 years, life is not going to be a lot of fun. And a lot of them are, in fact, going to choose to not live. Like you see this in the wake of every sort of collapsing society. Like when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there was a huge spike in suicide rates um, amongst your middle-aged males. You're seeing that in the U.S. today as U.S. power is declining. So this is not an abstract question. When there is a crisis, when survival pressures get extreme, when old ways of meaning-making fail, then people look for new ways. They experiment with new ways. Most of them fail. The result of that failure is choosing not to live. So you will see a spike in suicide rates. And that's kind of just the harsh 
near-term future if we have to get through. And, and does China rise as the as the U.S. collapses or just you know becomes more like Britain or something in terms of loses power? I think that depends very strongly on the choices U.S. political leadership makes in the next five to ten years. Like, does uh, I think most of the times politics is irrelevant and the world kind of just does whatever without reference to what political leaders are thinking. But there are times and places when how politicians res- respond to realities actually matter. So at one point, China decided to retreat from the world and burn all its boats as the mythology goes, and it gave up its stance at the Industrial Revolution and Europe took the lead, right? And whoever was the Chinese emperor at that time made that choice. Uh, Britain was starting its decline sometime in the 1850s, and it was a very slow, long, century-long decline. And after the end of World War II, they basically became a vassal state to the United States. And now they're in Brexit, which is almost the end game of the British Empire. So what British leaders choose now actually matters. Same thing with U.S. leadership now. Like Trump is um, trying to hereby order U.S. corporations to do certain things. How they respond will actually determine what happens to the U.S. in uh, the next 15, 20 years. So whether it's a zero-sum game where the rise of China means the fall of U.S., or it's a non-zero-sum game where the world economy benefits from having like two large innovative superpowers. That's actually a choice that leaders in both countries are making right now. If legibility is to capitalism, you know, the intense pressure to keep making more things legible, what blank is to meaning or fulfillment or, or happiness? I think it's probably hedonism. So working at the level of the pleasure principle and just seeking to manufacture, uh, to maximize hedonistic pleasure from moment to moment. And to relate that to something I was talking about earlier, that maps to the lowest uh, level on the Hannah Arendt hierarchy. So hedonistic bliss is the only kind of happiness available if you're at the laboring level of the human condition. And for higher forms, you kind of have to level up from there. And the, I guess, the only question I have on top of that is legibility to capital like seems to work. Like it seems to be a foolproof way to make money is to keep making things legible that, you know, are in people's heads. Uh, whereas unclear that hedonism leads to, or unbridled healing leads to the meaning or fulfillment that people are, are seeking. Oh, it I doesn't. Guess. Just like trying to make things legible does not necessarily create wealth. Pursuing hedonism does not necessarily create happiness. Like it's one of the things that are somewhere part of the puzzle, like I mean, pleasurable things are pleasurable and they should be part of your equation. But if you reductively focus on just that, chances are you're not going to go anywhere beyond that. Right. And what does capitalism need beyond legibility? Uh, I think mainly leaving illegibility alone. Like it's possible to make certain things legible without trying to kill what's illegible around that legible thing. And so long as you have that sort of um, lazy fair attitude towards uh, what you make legible versus what you kind of leave alone to do its own thing, things kind of take care of themselves. But if you try to kill whatever you don't understand, that's when things uh, get problematic. Totally. Uh, in closing, talk about the uh, the elder blogging you were talking about earlier, or, or Act 2. What is sort of the idea behind uh, behind Act 1, Act 2, and, and what does that look like for you? I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. It's like um, like one of the responses when I sort of, I tend to be a grumpy old man on Twitter sometimes and I complain about this stuff. And then I say things like, oh, I'm slowing down. It's harder for me to get good ideas and um, blah, blah, blah. People often 
respond with uh, what I think are an uninteresting kind of suggestion, which is, you know, throw it all away and start again, self-disrupt. And I think those are the wrong answers because they are a way to have a second act one, which is not the same thing as having a first act two. So I think it's actually an interesting challenge to look at, I'm going to be 45 this year. So look at, you know, 45 years of life and say, all right, for better or worse, I've lived a certain life and 25 years as an adult. And there's a certain sort of pile of shit in my life that has to do with that. Some of it is good shit, some of it is bad shit, but there is stuff. There's 25 years worth of stuff. And you can choose to respond to it one of two ways. You can sort of wipe the slate clean and try to pretend you're 20 again and kind of have a rerun and a do-over of act one, which I think is fundamentally an uninteresting thing to do. Or you can say, all right, here I am. It is what it is. Where do I go from here? What are the interesting places I can get to by virtue of being where I am now? And that's, I think, the essence of the act two challenge. And it's uh, it's something I find interesting to think about. Like, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do over of my life from 20 to 45. I want a first instance of my life from 45 to, you know, 70 or whatever it is. This has been a fantastic episode, Ben Kat Rao. Thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. For people who want to go deeper into your work, uh, they could follow you at VGR. They could uh, check out Ribbon Farm. Where else might you point them? Uh, I have... Uh email list on consulting that is called art of gig and i have breaking smart which is where i do short podcasts 10 15 minute podcasts every week so yeah i'm all over the place fantastic thank you so much for for coming on the podcast if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst 